Welcome to another African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. Audiophilemagazine.com The Baltimore Afro-American Newspaper's Afro.com website The Associated Press The New York Times The Atlantic Magazine The Wall Street Journal and TheGrio.com We're going to start off today's program with a story from the Afro.com website, and the title of the story is U.S. Mint Announces Bessie Coleman Quarter to Come in 2023. It was written by the Afro staff and was published on April 9, 2022. After author Maya Angelou became the first African-American woman featured on the 25-cent coin, the U.S. Mint revealed five more women on April 4th to be on the quarter in 2023. Those women included... Jovita Idar, capital I-D-A-R, Edith Kanakaole, capital K-A-N-A-K-A, apostrophe O-L-E, Eleanor Roosevelt, Maria Tallchief, and the first black woman to hold a pilot license, Bessie Coleman. The range of accomplishments and experiences of these extraordinary women speak to the contributions women have always made in the history of our country, said Mint Deputy Director Ventress Gibson on the latest round of the honorees. I am proud that the Mint continues to connect America through coins by honoring these pioneering women and their groundbreaking contributions to our society. According to the U.S. Mint, the coins were set in motion by public law 116-330, the Circulating Collection Coin Redesign Act of 2020. The women were recognized for their work in areas such as suffrage, civil rights, abolition, government, humanities, science, space, and the arts, according to information released by the U.S. Mint. The women honored come from ethnically, racially, and geographically diverse backgrounds, as required by law, no living person will be featured in the coin designs, and thus, all the women honored must be deceased. Bessie Coleman was born on January 26, 1892 in Atlanta, Texas, and she was one of 13 children. Coleman became known as Brave Bessie or Queen Bess as she faced barriers of racial and gender discrimination to earn a pilot's license. Before earning a pilot's license, Coleman moved to Chicago, Illinois in 1915 and attended beauty school and worked as a manicurist in a local barber shop. Coleman was inspired by her brother John, who had served overseas in World War I. Coleman listened to her brother's stories about French women who flew airplanes and declared that flying was something Bessie would never be able to do. This only further encouraged Coleman to apply to flight schools throughout the country. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, because she was both female and an African-American, no U.S. flight school would take her. It was the publisher of the Chicago Defender, Robert Abbott, that convinced Coleman to move to France to pursue her training in aviation. In November 1920, Coleman moved to France to attend the Cauldron Brothers School of Aviation in Le Cretoy, capital L-E, capital C-R-O-T-O-Y. On June 15, 1921, she obtained her pilot's license from Federation Aeronautique Internationale before returning to the U.S. in September of that same year. Coleman died at age 34 in a crash during a test flight in 1926. 
though her legacy lives on and has opened doors for many African-Americans in the aviation field. Coleman also hoped to open a flight school, and although this did not happen, an airplane manufacturing company was named after her as well as Bessie Coleman Aero Club, organized by William J. Powell. In 1955, Coleman was featured on a 32-cent U.S. postal stamp, and in 2006, Bessie Coleman was inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame. According to the agency, the U.S. Mint was created by an act of Congress in 1792. The U.S. Mint joined the Department of the Treasury in 1873. As the nation's sole manufacturer of legal tender coinage, the Mint is responsible for producing circulating coinage for the nation to conduct its trade and commerce, according to information released by the agency. The U.S. Mint is also responsible for creating congressional gold medals, silver and bronze medals, and silver and gold bullion coins. A total of five coins with a variety of designs on the tail side will be released annually over the four-year period from 2022 through 2025. There's one picture that goes along with this story. It is a black and white photograph of Bessie Coleman wearing flight goggles. The caption reads, Bessie Coleman was the first African-American woman to hold a pilot license. Photo courtesy of Library of Congress. That was the story U.S. Men announces Bessie Coleman quarter to come in 2023. It was published April 9, 2022, was written by the Afro staff, and appeared on the Afro.com website. The next story in today's African-American Hour is titled, National Urban League Finds State of Black America is Grim. It was written by Michael Warren, and it was published April 13th by the Associated Press at the AP.com website. The National Urban League released its annual report on the state of black America on Tuesday, and its findings are grim. This year's Equality Index shows black people still get only 73.9% of the American pie white people enjoy. While black people have made economic and health gains, they've slipped further behind white people in education, social justice, and civic engagement since this index was launched in 2005. A compendium of average outcomes by race in many aspects of life, it shows just how hard it is for people of color to overcome systemic racism, the civil rights organization says. These numbers change so little and so slowly. What it tells me is that this institutional disparity based on race seems to be built into American society, National Urban League President Mark Morial said in an interview. The index shows not only that the median household income for black people at $43,862 is 37% less than that of white people at $69,823, black people also are less likely to benefit from home ownership the engine of generational wealth in America. Census data shows black couples are more than twice as likely as their white counterparts to be denied a mortgage or a home improvement loan, which leads to just 59% of the median home equity white households have and just 13% of their wealth. In that area of wealth, we've seen almost no change, none since the civil rights days, Morial said. The wealth disparity has gotten wider. Among dozens of health measures, one stands out. Life expectancy has declined slightly for African Americans, so a black child born today can expect to live to 74.7, 
four years less than a white baby. And lifelong inequities loom. Black women are 59% more likely to die as a result of bearing a child and 31% more likely to die of breast cancer. Black men are 52% more likely to die of prostate cancer. Overdoses afflict the races about equally, while white people are 55% more likely to drink themselves to death through cirrhosis or chronic liver disease. Among people 15 to 24, white people are more than twice as likely to kill themselves, while black men are nine times more likely to die by homicide. Educational gaps abound. Black and white preschoolers are roughly equally prepared, but the classrooms they enter are starkly different. Schools with more minority students are more likely to have inexperienced, less trained, and even uncertified teachers. Fewer of these students are enrolled in the STEM classes that can lead to higher paying jobs. Black students are less likely to graduate from college. The index uses U.S. Justice Department statistics to chart social justice differences noting that black people have been more than twice as likely as white people to experience threats or uses of force during police encounters and three times more likely to be jailed if arrested. In 2020, they were 93% more likely to be victims of hate crimes. Measuring civic engagement, the index cites 2020 census data showing that white people are about 5% more likely to be registered and to actually vote than black people. Morial chose to release the report in Atlanta, where a concentration of historically black colleges have long represented high achievement among African Americans, in part because its survey shows a declining faith among young people that voting can make a difference. The Urban League is responding to launching a Reclaim Your Vote campaign. Georgia is ground zero for voter suppression, Morial said. The legislature's actions after January 6th have been sweeping in their aggressiveness to suppress the vote. We've got to remain resolute to push back against this. We cannot give in. We cannot give up. That was the reading of the story. National Urban League finds state of black America is grim. It was originally published April 12th, 2022 at the Associated Press's AP.com website. And it was written by Michael Warren. Next on today's program is an essay from the Atlantic magazine titled how Home Ownership Changes You by Joe Pinksker. It was published April 11, 2022 at the Atlantic.com website. The subtitle to this essay is, It's Not Just a Financial Commitment. It Can Alter People's Relationships to a Community, a Place, and Even Time. Growing up, Aaron Nelson used to make fun of their dad for spending so much time looking out the window at what the neighbors were up to. Now I'm that person. Nelson, a 31-year-old who bought their first house a year ago in Portland, Oregon, told me, I am always peeking out the window. That's like my new TV. Nelson, who uses they-slash-them pronouns, has realized that as a homeowner, their life is bound up with the people next door in a way it never has been before. Buying a first house is, for those who can afford it, among the largest financial decisions someone makes in their life. And lately, the process has only gotten more stressful. During the pandemic, home prices have shot up and shopping for a house has become intimidatingly competitive in many places. But even some winners of the competition have buyer's remorse. 
In a recent survey from the real estate site Zillow, roughly one-third of respondents reported regretting how much work or maintenance their home required, and roughly one-fifth concluded they had paid too much. Perhaps forgotten amid the bidding wars and the rush to lock in a mortgage as interest rates rise is the fact that this transaction has a way of changing people as well. In addition to buying an assemblage of wood, glass, and other materials and committing to a host of unfamiliar chores, homeowners are also buying a psychological grab bag of new stressors. Time sucks, comforts, perks, and trivial fixations such as the neighbor's comings and goings. Homeownership can change your mental time horizon, your conception of your community, and your stakes in a physical place. For starters, homeownership alters people's relationship to the tangible stuff that makes up their house. When I rented an apartment, I was like, I'm hanging this photo on the wall. Whatever, it's not my wall, Maya Bittner, a 34-year-old in the Seattle area who works at a financial technology company, told me. Now I'm like, Good God, I put every dollar I have into the down payment and this drywall is like a shrine. Today's new homeowners may even feel more of a desire to preserve and perfect their living space than previous generations. Logan Motashami, capital M-O-H-T-A-S-H-A-M-I, the lead analyst for the real estate news site Housing Wire, told me that buyers tend to hold on to their home for longer than they used to. The typical length of tenure was five to seven years from the mid-1980s to the mid-2000s and is now, according to the real estate site Redfin, about 13 years. The psychology is that this is yours and you're going to make it as good as possible because you're in it for a long time, Murashami said. Bittner does not love the work that this requires, though. The stress of home maintenance, say, coordinating the repair of a leaky window, is less meaningful to her than the stress of her job, which she feels at least has the benefits of moving her career forward. Committing to owning a house can also tie people more closely to a place. Nelson, who works for a tech startup, told me that after moving frequently during childhood and hopping from rental to rental in their 20s, they find homeownership very calming at age 31. It has also led them to wonder, now that I've settled and claimed this little piece of land, what am I going to do to invest in my community? One of Nelson's answers has been to devote about 10% of their disposable income to local nonprofits. In his book, Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing, Pete Davis, a civic advocate, has written about how making a commitment to one place at the exclusion of others can unlock a deeper sense of community and purpose in life. It is only when you're able to turn down the dial on the part of your mind that browses, assesses, compares, and judges the relationships you are in with places and institutions around you, and in turn, turn up the dial on the part of your mind that simply works to deepen those relationships, that these joys of commitment begin to arise, he told me. Buying a house is a clear way of solidifying such a commitment. Though Davis noted that homeownership shouldn't be considered a prerequisite for cultivating a stake in a community. For both renters and buyers, Davis maintains putting down roots in one place instead of keeping your options open is conducive to solving local problems. Cynically, that could be because roots make fleeing from those problems more difficult. But investing in a place can also give people a deeper appreciation of both its flaws and charms prompting people to do the hard work of improving it. Travis Sheridan, a 48-year-old who works at a real estate development company, 
had never had the same address for two consecutive years before purchasing a house in St. Louis eight years ago. That year, Michael Brown, a black 18-year-old, was killed by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, about a 15-minute drive away from Sheridan's new house. At the time, Sheridan, who was black, started questioning whether I could thrive in a place like St. Louis given the racial inequities and lack of social justice, he told me. Yet he recognized that running is easy and comes with privilege, and having invested in a house made him want to stick out both the good and the bad swings of a city. He's since volunteered with the neighborhood nonprofit and advocated at city meetings. In this way, Sheridan is similar to homeowners across the country who, research indicates, are more likely than non-owners to vote in local elections, donate to local candidates, and turn up at public planning meetings. But homeowners' rootedness can also mean that they might be the ones resisting change. As a group, they tend to be more opposed to the construction of new housing in their area, even though liberals might generally be assumed to support egalitarian housing policies, liberal homeowners are nearly as opposed to denser housing in their area as conservative ones. Part of the reason for this opposition might be the usually mistaken belief that additional housing in their neighborhood will hurt property values. But Katherine Einstein, a political science professor at Boston University, told me she suspects that in many cases, it stems from a resistance to changes in the community that they purchased a part of. Some of this resistance is innocuous, such as when people want to preserve a green space or limit traffic. Some of it is a coded form of racism or classism. When people say, this new townhouse will ruin the character of the neighborhood, Einstein said, you could be a little skeptical. Is it the building or the people who are going to live in that building? Although many people find homeownership has unforeseen drawbacks, they may less often discover unexpected perks. There's a slight pro-homeownership bias in a lot of our conversations, and we probably dwell on those positives enough that there's not a whole lot left unturned. Kevin Mahoney, a financial advisor in Washington, D.C., who works with millennials, told me, a prospective buyer, though, would be wise to internalize a fuller psychological accounting of what they're about to do. For better or worse, owning a small chunk of the country puts you in a committed relationship with your surroundings. You might think of your ties to a place and its people on a longer timeline, and seemingly bland subjects, drywall and planning meetings, might take on new importance in your life. Those changes have the potential to be as fulfilling as they are exasperating. Bittner, the Seattleite, has a lovely new home. It has a wide view of the ocean, and she can look out and see seals and bald eagles, sunrise and sunset, and Mount Rainier. The house has delivered on Bittner's two main goals when buying it, having a nice living space, especially in the era of remote work, and a hedge against inflation. And yet, Bittner said that the house hasn't made her any happier. I have all the same problems that I had when I lived in a 400-square-foot apartment, she said. Plus, she has to fix her own windows when they leak. That was a reading of the essay, How Home Ownership Changes You by Joe Pinksker. It was published April 11th, 2022 at theatlantic.com. Next on today's program is an op-ed piece from the griot.com website by Donna Brazil. The title is, Here's what the Biden-Harris $5.8 trillion budget proposal could mean for black Americans. It was originally published March 31st, 
2022. The $5.8 trillion federal budget the Biden-Harris administration proposed this week contains lots of good news for black Americans. The spending plan advances equity and racial justice and funds many programs to benefit low-income and middle-class families while asking the rich in corporations to pay their fair share of taxes. This is quite a change from the budget proposed by defeated former President Donald Trump and supported by congressional Republicans that added $2 trillion in deficit spending as the result of tax cuts for the wealthiest Americans and corporations, helping the rich get richer while cutting vital programs for Americans in need. The budget proposal by President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris for the federal fiscal year that begins in October would boost spending on domestic programs by 7% to fund critical priorities that would improve life for hardworking black and other families, including increasing the supply of affordable housing for low-income Americans, including expanding rental assistance to serve an additional 200,000 families beyond the 2.3 million families now getting such aid. Funding to prevent and reduce homelessness would also increase as would funding to expand home ownership that would benefit first-time home buyers with moderate incomes. Programs to fight housing discrimination would be expanded, doubling the maximum size of Pell Grants, which help students from families making less than $50,000 a year go to college. Nearly 60% of black college students get these grants. The budget also provides increased funding for historically black colleges and universities and other institutions educating large numbers of minority students. Funding would also be increased for public schools, including $12.2 billion for the Head Start program. And funding for the Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights would increase by 18%. Improving public health by making major investments in mental health care, advancing health equity, Accelerating medical research and making sure we are prepared for future pandemics, funds would be provided to continue COVID-19 vaccinations, treatment and research, seek an end to cancer, lower the cost of prescription medications and make health care more affordable in other ways. New investments in clean energy infrastructure and environmental justice to fight climate change and reduce pollution. On top of all this increased domestic investment, The Biden-Harris budget would boost defense spending by 10 percent to $773 billion in the face of Russia's brutal war against Ukraine and the increasing threat China poses. Members of the armed forces, about 20 percent of whom are black, would get a 4.6 percent pay raise under the budget. You might think all these investments would increase the federal deficit, but the Biden-Harris administration projects the budget would reduce the deficit by $1 trillion over a decade, on top of a record-setting deficit reduction this year expected to amount to $1.3 trillion. The budget would cut the deficit next year by bringing more fairness to our tax system. It would raise the top marginal tax rate on the richest Americans from the current 37% to 39.6%. It would also create a billionaire minimum tax of 20%, applying to only the top one one-hundredth of one percent of Americans. Importantly, no one making less than $400,000 a year would see their federal taxes increase. Billionaires currently pay an average of only 8% of their income in federal taxes. According to Forbes magazine, 
there were only seven black billionaires in the U.S. last year. My congratulations to all super-rich folks, including African-Americans Oprah Winfrey, Kanye West, Michael Jordan, Jay-Z, and Tyler Perry for their great success and generous charitable giving. But the billionaires of all races will still have more than enough money left to pay their bills if they pay their fair share of taxes. For corporations, the president said Monday, in 2020, there were 50 Fortune 500 companies that made $40 billion in profit combined but didn't pay a single solitary cent in federal taxes. Something is seriously wrong with our tax system when a mom-and-pop convenience store pays more in federal taxes than a giant multi-billion dollar corporation. Of course, we can count on Republicans in the House and Senate to oppose Biden's call for tax fairness. Their longtime goal has been to cut taxes for their wealthy political campaign donors as much as they can get away with, no matter how much this adds to the deficit and cuts funding available for programs benefiting the American people. Billionaire Trump and other Republican presidents made cutting taxes for the rich a top priority. It's also important to note that some Democrats and independents are opposing the Biden-Harris budget for entirely different reasons than the Republicans, such as Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, who opposes big increases in defense spending. Budgeting is a messy and contentious process, but vitally important. All sides will need to make painful compromises, and the Biden-Harris budget is sure to undergo changes before it wins congressional approval. But the proposed budget is a good one, expanding needed domestic programs, funding a strong national defense, and creating a fairer tax system. That was the op-ed piece. Here's what the Biden-Harris $5.8 trillion budget proposal could mean for black Americans. It was written by Donna Brazil and was originally published March 31, 2022 at the griot.com website. Next on the African American Hour is an audiobook review from Audiophile Magazine. The title of the audiobook is Entertaining Race, Performing Blackness in America. It was written by Michael Eric Dyson and also read by Michael Eric Dyson. It falls into the category of contemporary culture and will take approximately 21 hours to read. This audiobook was originally published in 2021, and this review was published in March of 2022. Michael Eric Dyson does a generally fine job narrating his wide-ranging look at black performance of all types. Dyson, a minister, academic, political analyst, and radio show host, plus more, is a polished professional speaker and conveys humor or passion as appropriate. Still, some listeners may feel his effort here occasionally sounds too much like plain old reading. He touches on dozens of topics ranging from the singer Beyonce to the slain black youth Trayvon Martin, from entertainer and alleged predator Bill Cosby, to the contradictions of civil rights hero and martyr Martin Luther King Jr., this audiobook consists largely of Dyson's past writings and speeches. It covers many subjects, some more smoothly than others, but all are interesting and thought-provoking. That was a review of the audiobook, Entertaining Race, Performing Blackness in America, by Michael Eric Dyson from Audiophile Magazine. 
It was read by Michael Eric Dyson. It falls into the category of contemporary culture. And this review was originally published in March of 2022. Next is a review of an audiobook from audiophilemagazine.com. The title of the audiobook is Act Like You Got Some Sense and Other Things My Daughters Taught Me by Jamie Foxx. It was read by Jamie Foxx and Corinne Foxx. It falls into the category of biography. It will take approximately 5.75 hours to listen to, and this audiobook was originally published in 2021. Multi-talented entertainer Jamie Foxx tells it like it is, with help from his oldest daughter, Corinne Foxx, in this funny, touching, and irreverent memoir narrated by himself. Corinne provides a humorously honest forward with her perspective of her dad. Jamie uses a tender tone while sharing childhood stories about being raised by his beloved grandmother, and it underlines his vulnerability in not having known his own parents well until later in life. Jamie shares how his path to fame made it easier to provide for his family, but more difficult to be present for them. Eventually, he corrected this and learned many lessons along the way. Hilarious impersonations of Oprah, Eddie Murphy, and other celebrities round out this heartfelt collection of stories from a Hollywood father. That was a review of the audiobook, Act Like You Got Some Sense and Other Things My Daughters Taught Me, by Jamie Foxx. It was read by Jamie Foxx and Corinne Foxx. This review appeared in audiophilemagazine.com and was originally published in March of 2022. Up next on the African American Hour is something that kind of goes along with Mother's Day. It's an obituary. An obituary about the mother of Malcolm X. It's titled Overlook No More. Louise Little, activist and mother of Malcolm X. The subtitle is She Fought Oppression in Public and Private Spheres and Shaped Her Son's Education as He Evolved into a Powerful Thinker and Speaker. This appeared on the nytimes.com website on March 21st, 2022, and was written by Julie Solomon. This article is part of Overlooked, a series of obituaries about remarkable people whose deaths, beginning in 1851, went unreported in the Times. For more than 50 years, the few Americans who knew the name Louise Little had one, maybe two images of her. In the first, on a dark night in 1925, a young woman trembles on a porch in Omaha, Nebraska. Three children at her skirts, the future Malcolm X in her belly, while Klansmen circle the house shattering windows. In the second image, 14 years later, the same woman, now a widowed, careworn mother of eight, is shuffled into a sheriff's car and driven off to a mental asylum, her children left to the mercy of the state authorities. The first story opens the autobiography of Malcolm X, 1965, and it became ubiquitous in the many books and films about his life that followed. The second consigned little to obscurity. She disappeared behind the tall brick walls of the asylum where she remained for 25 years. Both stories are keys to the narrative of a boy, born Malcolm Little, who rose from violence and poverty to become a global figure in the struggle for black rights. 
but both have played too neatly into the bluntest of tropes about black women and erased vital truths not only about Malcolm's life, but also the arc of black history. Now, as the new generation of biographers reclaim Little's life, these images of her have been transfigured. Louise Little emerges as a formidable and nuanced protagonist who, like other black women over the centuries, fought oppression in both public and private spheres. The reframing of her life corrects a tradition that has presented black women activists as exceptions and has missed the critical role of black mothers. Anna Malika Tubbs says it precisely in the subtitle of her 2021 book, The Three Mothers, how the mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin shaped the nation. The KKK targeted the little home because Louise and her husband Earl were unapologetic activists who pushed a message of revolution in the new black communities of the unwelcoming Midwest. On that terrifying night on her porch, recalled her eldest son Wilfred, she drew herself up to her full five feet eight inches and spoke with her characteristic calm until the Klansmen retreated. Her institutionalization trapped her and traumatized her children, but it came only after she had waged an eight-year battle against welfare workers, police, and judges, the powers that have epitomized structural racism. Helen Louise Langdon was born on the Caribbean island of Grenada in 1894 or 1897. Her birth year is just one of many details that are hard to pin down. Larger questions about her life are also matters of dispute or interpretation in the now growing literature about her. Did a white man named Norton, her biological father, have a relationship with Louise's mother, the much younger Edith, or did he rape her? How did Louise feel about her fair skin, which complicated her relationships with her husband, with Malcolm, and with any community where she lived? Louise was a baby when Edith died, so she was raised by her grandmother Mary Jane Langdon and her Aunt Gertrude. Mary Jane and her husband Jupiter, who also died when Louise was small, were captured in West Africa when they were young but were freed by the British Navy sometime after 1833 when Imperial Britain banned slavery. The Langdons celebrated their African roots and Grenada's proud legacy of rebellion against occupiers while living a code of self-reliance. They farmed their own land and each plied a trade, Jupiter as a carpenter, Mary Jane as an herbalist, and Gertrude as a seamstress. Louise studied at a local Anglican school, excelled in writing, spoke English, French, and Creole, and absorbed world history. However, slanted diversion from the royal reader textbooks given to millions of children across the British Empire. At about 21, she embarked alone on a journey of more than 3,000 miles from the port of St. George's in Grenada to Montreal, where her uncle had immigrated. He introduced her to the growing black nationalist movement led by Marcus Garvey. Little was immediately drawn to Garvey's ethos of self-determination and pan-African confraternity, as was Earl Little, a Baptist minister and recent immigrant who had escaped the violence of Jim Crow, Georgia. The two married after meeting at a Garvey event. Their marriage proved turbulent. Earl, haunted by what he had suffered in the South, was sometimes calmed, sometimes provoked by the more hopeful worldly Louise. She, by contrast, had escaped exposure to America's more toxic form of racism, according to The Dead Are Rising, a 2020 biography of Malcolm X by Les Payne and his daughter Tamara Payne. By most accounts, 
Earl was abusive at times, but the marriage was also a stable merger of shared striving, the Paines wrote, powered by shared passions for their children, for personal and political autonomy, and for their work. The young couple arrived in Omaha, their first assigned post as Garvey missionaries, in the wake of the red summer of 1919, when dozens of American cities were convulsed by racial violence. The thousand-strong lynch mobs there were particularly notorious. The little set to work founding a Garvey chapter as they would in cities in Wisconsin and Michigan over the next decade. Earl recruited at home and on the road. Louise was chapter secretary and a reporter for Garvey's newspaper, The Negro World. According to The Life of Louise Norton, 2021, by Jessica Russell, with contributions by little family members, the family sheltered Garvey when he was in flight from federal agents on charges of mail fraud, and Louise wrote material for a national campaign urging President Calvin Coolidge to grant Garvey clemency. Wherever they settled their growing family, the Littles were a provocation. Not only did they spread Garvey's bold rhetoric, but their own literacy and economic autonomy were also an affront. When one of their homes in a white area burned down, Earl, a skilled carpenter, quickly rebuilt it. Louise worked as a seamstress and sold her own designs. Most of the family's livelihood came from farming and hunting on land they owned, a rarity in sharecropping America. Their family car was another anomaly, as was Louise's driving it. They were continually threatened by white neighbors and officials, and many black residents were afraid to be seen with them. As the little children began to attend school, Louise took on a new role, a prescient form of the activist parent. She worked to counter what the children were taught, correcting their routine slander about black people to inoculate her children against self-hatred. If she heard of a particularly egregious remark or lesson, she would march into the school and demand respect. She took the children to various churches and temples to sample religious ideas and had them sing the alphabet in French, read aloud the Negro World and another newspaper, the West Indian, and look up every new word in the family dictionary. By the seventh grade, Malcolm had top grades and was class president. Family life, solid if not secure, was shattered in 1931 when Earl died when he was run over by a streetcar in Lansing, Michigan. The idea that the incident was not an accident, that Earl could have been murdered, became a touchstone of Malcolm's life story, though it has largely been refuted. Even with help from her oldest children, Louise struggled to keep the family fed in the depths of the Great Depression and in the throes of escalating harassment. First, an insurance company insisted that Earl had committed suicide and refused to pay out the $10,000 policy that the Littles had so carefully funded. When Louise reluctantly accepted federal relief money violating her values, she became subject to new levels of scrutiny. Local officials routinely withheld her relief checks while pushing her to sell her land. Hope appeared briefly in the form of a man courting her, but when she became pregnant, he left town. She was suffering from hunger, overwork, and most likely postpartum depression when the authorities used her out-of-wedlock birth and the delinquent behavior by Malcolm as excuses to attack with fresh vigor. A judge first removed Malcolm from the home, then ordered Little's other children to be placed in foster care. Soon after, the judge engineered Little's commitment to an institution. Malcolm saw his mother twice during her 25 years of institutionalization. The same years, he was evolving into a powerful thinker and speaker as a prominent figure in the Nation of Islam. 
His renown very likely helped to get Little released in 1963 after years of petitions by his siblings. He saw her again at a joyous family reunion. Less than two years later, he was assassinated. In her last years, Little lived quietly with one of her daughters in the celebrated black community of Woodland Park, Michigan. Her ashes were scattered there after her death on December 18, 1989. She was believed to be 91. Malcolm's speeches and writing reflected a deep ambivalence about his mother. In his autobiography, written by Alex Haley and published after Malcolm's death, he sounded contrite in allowing that his behavior had accelerated Louise's decline. But he also seemed to justify Earl's abuse of Louise because she had showed off her superior education and he sought to erase any hint that his educated mother had educated him. For years, the autobiography set the tone for any view of Little. But beginning in 2003, letters that Malcolm wrote to family members have surfaced to present a different picture. The scholar Garrett Felber, who has had access to the letters, referred to one that Malcolm wrote to his brother Filbert in 1949. Their mother has suffered at the hands of the state, Malcolm wrote, because the authorities knew that she was not deadening our minds. He added, my accomplishments are ours and yours are mine, but all of our achievements are mom's, for she was a most faithful servant of the truth years ago. I praise Allah for her. That was the obituary, overlooked no more. Louise Little, activist and mother of Malcolm X. It was written by Jolie Solomon and published March 21st, 2022. Next on today's African American Hour is a story from the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper and its afro.com website. The title is African refugees see racial bias as U.S. welcomes Ukrainians. It was originally published April 7, 2022, and was written by Philip Marcello. Wilfred Teba, capital T-E-B-A-H, doesn't begrudge the U.S. for swiftly granting humanitarian protections to Ukrainians escaping Russia's devastating invasion of their homeland. But the 27-year-old who fled Cameroon during its ongoing conflict can't help but wonder what would happen if the millions fleeing that Eastern Europe nation were a different hue. As the U.S. prepares to welcome tens of thousands of Ukrainians fleeing war, the country continues to deport scores of African and Caribbean refugees back to unstable and violent homelands where they faced rape, torture, arbitrary arrest, and other abuses. They do not care about a black man, the Columbus, Ohio resident said, referring to U.S. politicians. The difference is really clear. They know what is happening over there, and they have decided to close their eyes and ears. Taba's concerns echo protests against the swift expulsions of Haitian refugees crossing the border this summer without a chance to seek asylum, not to mention the frosty reception African and Middle Eastern refugees have faced in Western Europe compared with how those nations have enthusiastically embraced displaced Ukrainians. In March, when President Joe Biden made a series of announcements welcoming 100,000 Ukrainian refugees, granting temporary protected status to another 30,000 already in the U.S., and halting Ukrainian deportations, two Democratic lawmakers seized on the moment to call for similar humanitarian considerations for Haitians. There is every reason to extend the same level of compassion U.S. Representatives Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts 
and Mondaire Jones of New York wrote to the administration, noting more than 20,000 Haitians have been deported despite continued instability after the assassination of Haiti's president and a powerful earthquake this summer. Cameroonian advocates have similarly ratcheted up their calls for humanitarian relief, protesting in front of the Washington residence of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and the offices of leading members of Congress this month. Their calls come as hundreds of thousands in Cameroon have been displaced in recent years by the country's civil war between its French-speaking government and English-speaking separatists, attacks by the terrorist group Boko Haram and other regional conflicts. The advocacy group Human Rights Watch, in a February report, found many Cameroonians deported from the U.S. suffered persecution and human rights violations upon returning there. Teba, who is a leading member of the Cameroonian American Council, an advocacy group organizing protests this month, said that's a fate he hopes to avoid. Hailing from the country's English-speaking Northwest, he said he was branded as a separatist and apprehended by the government because of his activism as a college student. Teba said he managed to escape, as many Cameroonians have, by flying to Latin America, trekking overland to the U.S.-Mexico border and petitioning for asylum in 2019. I will be held in prison, tortured, and even killed if I am deported, he said. I am very scared. As a human, my life matters too. The Department of Homeland Security, which oversees TPS and other humanitarian programs, declined to respond to the complaints of racism in American immigration policy. It also declined to say whether it was weighing granting TPS to Cameroonians or other African nationals saying in a written statement only that it will continue to monitor conditions in various countries. The agency noted, however, that it has recently issued TPS designations to Haiti, Somalia, Sudan, and South Sudan, all African or Caribbean nations, as well as to more than 75,000 Afghans living in the United States after the Taliban takeover of that Central Asian nation. Haitians are among the largest and longest tenured beneficiaries of TPS, with more than 40,000 currently on the status. Other TPS countries include Burma, Honduras, Nepal, Nicaragua, Syria, Venezuela, and Yemen, and the majority of the nearly 320,000 immigrants with temporary protected status hail from El Salvador. Lisa Paricio, who helped launch Catholics Against Racism and Immigration, argues the program could easily help protect millions more refugees fleeing danger but has historically been underused and over-politicized. TPS, which provides a work permit and staves off deportation for up to 18 months, doesn't have limits for how many countries or people can be placed on it, said Paricio, who is the advocacy director of the Catholic Legal Immigration Network. Yet former President Donald Trump and his broader efforts to restrict immigration pared down TPS, allowing designations for Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea and West Africa to expire. Although programs like TPS provide critical protections for vulnerable refugees, they can also leave many in legal limbo for years without providing a pathway to citizenship, said Carla Morales, a 24-year-old from El Salvador who has been on TPS nearly her whole life. It's absurd to consider 20 years in this country temporary, the University of Massachusetts Boston nursing student said. We need validation that the work we've put in is appreciated and that our lives have value. 
At least in the case of Ukraine, Biden appears motivated by broader foreign policy goals in Europe rather than racial bias, suggests Maria Cristina Garcia, a history professor at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, focused on refugees and immigrants. But Tom Wong, founding director of the U.S. Immigration Policy Center at the University of California, San Diego, said the racial disparities couldn't be clearer. The U.S. has responded without hesitation by extending humanitarian protections to predominantly white and European refugees, he said. All the while, predominantly people of color from Africa, the Middle East, and Asia continue to languish. Besides Cameroon, immigrant advocates also argue that Congo and Ethiopia should qualify for humanitarian relief because of their ongoing conflicts, as should Mauritania since slavery is still practiced there and they complain Ukrainian asylum seekers are being exempted from asylum limits meant to prevent the spread of COVID-19, while those from other nations are being turned away. Black pain and black suffering do not get the same attention, says Sylvie Bello, founder of the D.C.-based Cameroon American Council. The same anti-blackness that permeates American life also permeates American immigration policy. There's one photograph that goes along with this story. It shows a man wearing a black shirt and standing in a yard. It reads, Wilfred Teba, capital T-E-B-A-H, who fled Cameroon during its ongoing conflict, poses for a photo in the backyard of his home March 31, 2022 in Columbus, Ohio. African refugees say the recent decision to grant Ukrainians fleeing war refugee status and other humanitarian protections underscores the racial bias inherent in American immigration policy. That was a reading of the story, African refugees see racial bias as U.S. welcomes Ukrainians. It appeared at the Baltimore Afro-Americans Afro.com website on April 7, 2022, and was written by Philip Marcello. Next is a book review from the April 12, 2022 edition of the Wall Street Journal. It was written by David M. Shripman, capital S-H-R-I-B-M-A-N. The title of the review is Brooklyn and Beyond. The name of the book is True. The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson by Costilla Kennedy capital K-O-S-T-Y-A. Travel back three quarters of a century, cross a border, imagine a world of fedoras and streetcars. There are smoked meat sandwiches on warm plates and shivering commuters on cold corners. It is Montreal in 1946. Mobsters rule the street and the Catholic Church rules the soul. The mayor, who had encouraged Quebecers not to register for the World War II draft, has won back his office after being sent to an internment camp for sedition. French and English mingle in the patisseries. Furriers and longshoremen mingle by the river. It was in post-war Montreal that the man who would break baseball's color barrier, C-L-O-U-R, that is how the word was spelled in Montreal's Morning Gazette and the Afternoon Star, began his star turn. Jackie and Rachel Robinson, known as the Couple Noir, lived on Avenue de Gaspé in the Francophone neighborhood of Villaray. He took public transportation to the ballpark. Montreal is at the center of one of the episodes that Costilla Kennedy presents in True, the four seasons of Jackie Robinson, 
a fresh and refreshing look at a twice-told or more tale. Certainly, much of the Robinson story is familiar. The hotels and ballparks where he was locked out, the travails that he and Rachel experienced on the road, the taunts he heard on the field along with the courage of Branch Rickey, the Brooklyn Dodgers general manager who signed him, and of course, the courage of Robinson himself. But it is Robinson's time in Montreal that pulsates on the page. For the Robinsons, there was something sweet and welcome about Montreal, Mr. Kennedy writes. The city imparted a freshness and warmth despite the first seasonal chill, and it offered the promise of a respite. Robinson was there to play on the Dodgers' minor league team, the Royals. He performed brilliantly during his season there, Mr. Kennedy tells us, showing his outsized talent from the start. He hit 349, knocked in 66 runs, and had 40 stolen bases, setting in motion the logic of his moving to the big leagues the next year. My grandfather, who lived less than eight miles from Domelier Stadium, was known to have skipped work to watch him play. Outside the park, Montreal offered a respite indeed. More concerned with how you prayed than how you looked, Montrealers treated Jackie and Rachel with the characteristic Quebec nonchalance. Seen from the heights of Mount Royal, American race prejudice was a perverse peculiarity, one of many that prevailed down there across the border. The other seasons that Mr. Kennedy sketches have a resonance of their own. The summer of 1949, when Robinson was the first black player to start in an all-star game, standing along the foul line between Ralph Kenner and Gil Hodges, then testifying on Capitol Hill about blacks' democratic patriotism, offering an all-American counterpoint to the Soviet-admiring public advocacy of Paul Robeson. The autumn of 1956, when Robinson batted cleanup in the World Series at age 37. His raw speed clipped, but his instincts hardly dulled, as Mr. Kennedy puts it. In that year, he also succeeded W.E.B. Dubois and Thurgood Marshall as a winner of the NAACP Spingarn Medal for his civic consciousness, and he played his final inning in a game he had changed forever. The summer and autumn of 1972, when the Dodgers retired his uniform number 42, and when the pallbearers in his funeral were a dream team of mourners, including Bill Russell, Don Newcomb, and Pee Wee Reese. As illuminating as these seasonal portraits are, what emerges from true above all is that Robinson was baseball's man for all seasons. A mixture of great conscience, great grace, and not least astonishing physical skill. The book's title alludes to an epigraph saying that whatever the circumstances, Robinson remained true to his convictions, among much else. Robinson had a batter's box stance that made him look, in Mr. Kennedy's characterization, like a sculpted pillar. As a former UCLA standout on the gridiron, he possessed a football player's cruel, purposeful body draped now in the thick, loose-fitting flannel of his Dodger grays. At the plate and on the field, on the base paths, Robinson was elegance personified. He brought to the National League a dazzle and pluck, Mr. Kennedy writes. His intelligence allowed him to make up ground on players who had far more in-game experience. On the Dodgers, only Robinson and Pee Wee Reese were allowed to decide on their own whether to steal a base. In the 1955 World Series, 
Robinson audaciously stole home even though the tying run was at the plate with two men out and with Brooklyn down by two runs. Mr. Kennedy, the author of earlier books about Joe DiMaggio and Pete Rose, notes that Robinson was almost immediately drafted into political and social debate, presented as a symbol of the nation's better instincts as well as a reminder of its harshest sin. But the proscenian arch of the ballpark was always the focus of his attention. Every dime in a stage. Though the stadiums were often segregated, he captivated the whole crowd. Though blacks and whites returned home to different lives in different neighborhoods, they had all seen Jackie Robinson play for the Dodgers. That much was true. Mr. Kennedy's Chronicle is less a biography of a man than a story of a distant time. On a July afternoon at the park, there was not much more in the world that one could want than a creamsicle or a Dixie cup. Yet Robinson was refused a taxi ride the year he was chosen MVP, 1949. Along the way, True pays homage to a beautiful game that now, between truculent owners and players, a series of strikes, a surfeit of strikeouts, and obsession with home runs, seems on the verge of ruin. Where have you gone, Jackie Robinson? That was a review of the book, True, The Four Seasons of Jackie Robinson, written by Castilla Kennedy. The review was by David M. Shripman and was from the April 12, 2022 edition of the Wall Street Journal. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour this week. Rosemarie will be here next week. My name is Byron Buckner. Thanks for joining me.